This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French without Sarah Isker. Sarah, my my brilliant co-host, is on vacation. She's on vacation taking a well-deserved leave of absence. Well, leave of absence for one whole week from the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Uh, but uh, I know you guys are already disappointed in this podcast. I know you're already frustrated and angry. But s- s- do not press pause. Do not skip. I have a great, a great guest, um, Greg Lukianoff, president of FIRE, my friend, FIRE Foundation, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. And this, this guest spot is particularly salient because his presence on this podcast is a demonstration in a tangible way of how both Greg and I are responsive to donors and fans. So... <laughs> Greg, do you want to tell tell the people what happened? So we got this um, really troublesome. Oh, first, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, welcome to to the uh, DC <laughs> area. Um, we got this uh, email from a donor who said, "I used to give um, two hundred dollars a month, and I'm, I've reduced it to fifty dollars a month because you're not on the dispatch enough." You, you, and um, so I wrote to David saying, <laughs> "David, we're hemorrhaging money." This is unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's kind of kidding a little bit, but you know, so uh, David immediately invited me on. So nobody can say we're not responsive to donors. I expect that $200 to go back, please. Thank you very much. Exactly. It was, I mean, the responsiveness was pretty frighteningly immediate, actually. So <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. it's like we didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. Maybe we didn't have anything <laughs> else to do. <laughs> well, what was perfect about it is Sarah was going on vacation and I, I was like, I need a guest. And then your email popped in my inbox. It's like, oh, problem solved. Donor <laughs> satisfied, fan happy. I mean, this, free speech this on is, campus solved. This is for you. Yes, free speech on campus solved. So this is for you, donor slash fan, this podcast. Um, all right. So I let's let's sort of set up what the podcast is gonna be. So Greg, uh, he runs Fire, my longtime friend. Uh, we used to work together at Fire. Um Gosh, we worked together at Fire before I was at Fire because you were the legal director at Fire. I was the first member, I think, of the Fire Legal Network. I think you were, yeah, yeah. It's funny. David and I became friends because he he was doing litigation uh, defending free speech rights on campus before this was cool, you know, like back in like two thousand one. And we would uh, end up on the phone sometimes, and we start talking about like Star Trek and stuff, Um, you know, like you know, we're, we're nerds with strong opinions. Actually, that's kind of almost redundant. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, I, I got particularly angry about the, the, um, bad trolley program, uh, trolley problem example in one episode of Voyager that I thought was actually an immoral decision <laughs> where Captain Janeway put 120 innocent people and in her crew in danger to save the life of one super Hitler. Mm, I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten it was about right, that. It was outrageous. They, I, they basically made an apology episode for it on, on Enterprise. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> we should go back to, to, uh, to, to free speech on campus. <laughs> Can I just say that nerds with strong opinions would be a fantastic podcast name? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, 
That would be so good. The 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 millions of viewer of of listeners. All right. So what we're going to do? So Greg from his perch at Fire probably has his finger on the pulse of free speech, not just on campus, but sort of the state of free speech in the United States more than maybe any single individual. Because one of the things that heck we've argued for twenty plus years is that what starts on campus does not stay on campus. And you sort of planted your flag years ago, waving it in the wind, saying, wait a minute, none of this, all of you people are saying all of these free speech problems on campus, they're going to they're stay on campus once people hit the real world. You're saying, no, wait, all these students are going to change the real world. They're not going to conform to it. They're going to change it. So let's just start with a question from where you sit on your perch at fire at the beginning of a new school year. What is the state of free speech on campus in the United States of America? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's it's one of these things where you take criticism for saying this every year, but it's been true every year, um, is that <laughs> 2020 was the worst year I'd ever seen for, for free speech on campus. Um, we started um, developing a scholar database to see how many you know, professors were targeted for being fired. Um, and we tried to look back to 2015. We found that there were 113 attempts to um, get professors uh, fired um, just in 2020. And that doesn't count. That doesn't count students. That doesn't count. And, the, and these and this is also pretty remarkable in the face of the fact that some of these schools have literally no conservatives in some of their departments. And nonetheless, you have this many professors being uh, being fired. So um, I I've never seen it this bad. Uh, we started doing, um, we, we, we released two bits of, of data, one on our scholar database um, and our school rankings where we, uh, the thing that allowed us to do rankings, the capacity we never had before was to be able to ask students directly, are you able to express yourself on this campus? Um, because we, we knew what their codes looked like. We knew what their behavior looked like. We didn't actually, we didn't have the, the one final thing that could actually let us say, go to this school um, if you want free speech and, and don't go to the school um, if you do. And, you know, the numbers there were kind of shocking, particularly about things like about acceptance of violence, about, um, but also about uh, there was another study that wasn't even ours talking about 82% of self-describing uh, liberal students saying they would report their professor for being offensive. So it's kind of like if you're a professor and you're not worried, although I don't think there's many of the that, that aren't currently worried in, in the environment, maybe you should be. Yeah. Now that, so, you know, I think that I follow, I, I try to follow the cancel, the attempted cancellations and the cancel culture stuff pretty darn closely um, but that number surprised even me. The over 100 surprised even me. So that those are things; those are cancellation attempts or termination. And just professors, not students. Right, right. So, so that's stuff that happened. That was that was stuff that didn't make the national media. That didn't really, you know, make it onto at least prominently onto Twitter. Um, so, in other words, if you're monitoring this this sort of cancel culture stuff on Twitter and think you have a handle on it, you're underestimating what's going on. <laughs> is that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that, is that what you're saying? I, I, I am. And it's, it, it really profoundly worries me because, you know, I, uh, um, I wrote a book with Jonathan Haidt called Coddling the American Mind. Um, we noticed something strange happening on campus around 2013. Uh, students who used to be really good uh, on free speech, used to be the best on free speech out of professors and administrators and students, students got it the best. And that changed like lightning struck uh, right around late 2013, 2014. 
Um, and it's just proceeded to, and the funny thing is, you'll have critics who say, oh, 20, you know, 2016 wasn't that bad of a year for disinvitations. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to, it's not going to be exactly linear every single year. You, you only need to really scare a student population or professor population like once every couple of years to, to, to get your point across. Um, but something really significant had happened on, uh, on campus and how, um, how, if you told me the kind of cases I'd be seeing today, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been like, you're catastrophizing, you're being ridiculous. These are you know, no, no way people are, you know, um, getting in trouble for saying, you know, biological sex exists, for example. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it, it, it's amazing, like how bad it's gotten in such a short time. Yeah, it's, uh, that's the thing that's really fascinating to me, because if you look back at our legal efforts, so going all the way back to, gosh, was it, um, 0203, we started the speech code litigation project with the lit with a lawsuit against a public university in Pennsylvania. And we began chipping away at the speech code edifice around the country. Um, and we're we knocked down codes here and there and everywhere. I'm almost get to get about to go into the Roy Kent chant from um Ted Lasso. I don't know if you're watching that. <laughs> I love. I love Ted Lasso. I, I think that I think the endings are getting a, maybe a little too silly, but the but the show's a genius. Yeah, it's so great. But anyway, so we were here and there and everywhere, knocking down speech codes and winning and winning and winning. I think DJ Khaled did a um, wrote a song about free speech litigation in the early 2000s, which was all I do is win, 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 <laughs> and so. We were winning everywhere, knocking down these speech codes and, and really clearing sort of a legal, legally protected superhighway for free speech on campus. But then what ends up happening, at least from my perception in a lot of these instances, is that we had cleared away the legal protection so that professors, students were more protected from the actions of, of public university administrators than ever before. But then the peer, this is what you're, you know, the, the culture of intimidation and shaming and anger, which is just as difficult to endure, if not more difficult to endure sometimes as an actual punitive action from a department began to rise. And you, you famously videotaped one of the first Oh, big man, incidents yeah. of this. Yeah, that was Nicholas Christakis. I was now, of course, it was turned into a conspiracy theory. Why was Greg Lukianoff secretly in the quad when when the um, <laughs> confrontation in Silliment and Campus happened? Like, because I'd been invited by Erica and Nicholas Christakis the previous spring to come that day to give a speech about free speech. Um, it was just a complete coincidence. <laughs> and, and and I got to watch this, you know, professor who is, you know, and, um, who are two of the kindest people I think I've ever met who do more for their community, Erica and, and Nicholas Christakis. Um, and I've heard, I've heard this, um, email so badly misrepresented intentionally as best I can tell by by Yale professors saying and uh, Erica Christakis David I literally I, at Bard College I saw a Yale professor claim that what Erica Christakis was doing was telling people to to dress up in clans room or put on blackface and I'm always like read the letter completely that false Erica, yeah Erica wrote yeah. because it's it's an old-fashioned um you know, only recently old fashioned, but a defense of student autonomy, basically saying like, are we really, is it really our job? And it didn't even say it's definitely not. It questioned is like, is it our job to interfere with what students decide to, uh, to uh, wear for Halloween? You know, like they're, 
aren't they supposed to be able to navigate these kind of decisions on their own? Like, are we their parents? We're not supposed to be. You know, basically exactly what, what the uh, previous generations of students would have thought was okay. And I was there for this constant, uh, th- th- this confrontation in, in, in Silliman, and I, I videotaped it to make sure that everybody knew that Nicholas Christakis was behaving with almost unbelievable patience um, in, in the front of being called disgusting, in the front of being yelled at, with people crying, demanding that he apologize or quit. Um, and, you know, that was that was definitely a career low point, you know, for me, because what it showed was that the, our big fear that we saw going back to like the late 90s, back when I was in law school, what the, the, the big slow motion train wreck you could see was that free speech that there were there were efforts to turn free speech into basically a um, uh, a problematic idea on campus. And this goes back to people like Mary Matsuda, Nic- Nicholas Delgado, uh, uh, Richard Delgado, going back to the 80s. Um, and it was clear it was going to happen. Um, on, and there, and it didn't seem like there was anything we could really do with it. And this was back when I worked at the ACLU, Northern California. You could already see free speech becoming the not cool cause. But what's essentially happened is that when you're in power, when your ideas are, are ascendant, when you're when you're uh, when your ideas are actually popular, uh, free speech starts starts to look like um, an impediment. So basically, it, you had generations of students coming and saying, "It's like I want this speech code, I want this person punished," and people are like, "No, no, no, free speech, free free, free speech." But as universities became more became less and less, you know, um, ideologically diverse, it yeah, w- once you're the decision maker, it's pretty normal for people to start seeing free speech a- as part of the problem. But it's it, it, it sunk its teeth in so profoundly uh, to this, like seeing some of the situations we've seen at the New York Times, you know, over the past couple of years, it's like they, they would have sounded like like exaggerated stories that I would have like rolled my eyes at even in 2010. Yeah, you know, and there's this interesting dynamic to it. And and you've seen this repeated, not just at the New York Times, but multiple other institutions where there seems to be a uh, there will be an internal revolt by younger, more activist employees. Now, they may not represent a majority of the employees. They may not. But there is a very strong internal reaction to um, speech that that some folks on the staff find upsetting. And what's striking to me is that the older, more old school liberal, small L liberal kind of uh, progressives in the staff seem unprepared to be hit so hard from their left. And, and that, that, you know, and often are quite willing to capitulate quite quickly. And there's an interesting parallel, um, you know, in when you look at accounts of what began to happen in campus activism, like in the late 60s and early 70s, there's a parallel. You had much more radical students confronting largely democratic, left-leaning professors and administrators. And the if you're it's, it, I think there's something interesting psychologically that goes on. If you're on the right, you're unaccustomed to being hit from the right. If you're on the left, you're unaccustomed to being hit by the left, and you are far more vulnerable to that. And, and I think that that's something that is these folks who are, they're being essentially blindsided and don't know quite how to respond to it. It's almost like it it inflicts a kind of psychological, ideological trauma on them, and they respond with capitulation like that. I mean, just instant capitulation. Yeah, I remember going to speak at University of Delaware, um, and this was actually secretly when I was going through, I was just about to have my like mental breakdown that led to me going to going to the hospital and then getting into CBT, which ultimately uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which then led to, you know, coddling the American mind. 
And I remember just being yelled at by students. Um, and it was amazing because like the students who were supported. So look up the University of Delaware program listeners. It, it's crazy. It, it, it's like the, the most aggressive was ideological <laughs> program we've ever seen. It really was like, I mean, literally one of the employees said, this will leave a mental footprint on your head, unknowingly, like basically quoting um, O'Brien from 1984, but like approvingly. Um, and it was just a very aggressive way of getting students to be, you know, they had questionnaires about their sexuality and what dates or what races they would date and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's just, just it's absolutely crazy case. But when I went to go speak at University of Delaware, you know, just getting shouted out by students. And the amazing thing is the students would always begin by saying, yes, this program went too far. But and I'm like, I'm not saying anything more than that. But like I'm not. But but it was one of those things where it's, you know, it can be um, I can understand why uh, 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 there's a lot of sort of chilled speech at the moment. But what, what's going on right now? So I thought we had a moment. Um, I'm working on a big feature piece for Reason magazine at the moment. And uh, one of the things I'm opening it up with is the much forgotten movie uh, PCU, which came out in 1994. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. which was at John Favreau and uh, what, 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 uh, Ari Gold, I forget what the name of that. Jeremy Piven. Jeremy Piven, you know, uh, what, what was the star. And it was not a good movie, but it was a signal that basically this had become so safe to make fun of, we could actually make a mainstream movie uh, about it. And I can, and, and the risk of insulting the uh, the viewers of the excellent program, the chair, um, the chair to some degree is kind of like our PCU in the sense that it became it's kind of okay to like say this is really happening and this is not this is this is this is a problem. Um, and in that very same month, we got a front page article in the Economist about uh, sort of like um, repressive ideology. And then you have Ann Applebaum's incredibly moving piece in, in the Atlantic saying, listen, so there's this whole, yeah. this whole category of professors who are just kind of erased and you're never going to hear their names because these hearings are secret and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, OK, you know, um, and then we came up with our data talking about, you know, we, we right now we have about 26 tenured professors fired in the past uh, in, in the past uh, since 2015 tenured tenured like one being fired. And there was this piece in the um, uh, in The New York Times by Michelle Goldberg, who I really respect um, and actually really generally like, but basically saying, um, well, that, the, the, the chair is just, you know, old white people feeling self-conscious and, and not getting getting with the program and also making the point that someone being fired for a Nazi salute, that's just fanciful. And it's like someone being fired for a Nazi salute. Um, it, and the fact that it's sarcastic, it doesn't matter. No, nobody cares about intent versus impact anymore on campus. And they should, but they don't. And I'm like, that would be like a, that would be like a on a 10 point scale of outrageousness for the cases I've seen. That would be like a four, you know, like like it, it just uh, and and the amazing thing is this very incident happened in January. Like a professor who, who um, was making fun of uh, like a fellow uh, professor for being, in his opinion, a Nazi did, did did like a little. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler kind of like salute at him. And he, and he was turned out like he, he was fired. So it's like not only <laughs> the fact that this is unlikely to happen is somewhat belied by the fact that it actually did happen. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, and I would, I would recommend the chair. I watched it from start to finish and I thought one I of thought the most really accurate, I thought it was really good. I think there were two parts that were particularly acutely accurate. One was when the professor believing that he can go and meet with the students and make everything okay is instead just 
it all goes to crap. Like I actually, I actually instantly. thought that was, I thought that was less accurate though. Um, having having been in, in, in like in the audience for some of these situations, that the students were being unreasonable, but they weren't shouting, they weren't crying, they weren't shouting over him. And like when I've seen most of these incidents, you know, on campus, you know, people come in with cowbells and will just, you know, just uh, they actually portrayed the students as being unfortunately more reasonable than I've seen them in similar circumstances <laughs> in real life. Yeah. Yeah, that no, I mean, you raise a good point as far as like some of the mob scenes that we've seen videotaped. But what what I did think was realistic about it, it was the way in which everything that the professor said was immediately taken in bad faith. In the least charitable as way. As if yeah. it was in the least charitable, as if the presumption is I'm speaking to a racist. How would a racist talk if he was trying to hide his racism? <laughs> and and so there was literally no way for him to win. And then the other thing was just the this sort of internal meeting where you have the chair, you have the dean, and you have the PR person. And they're sitting there looking at Twitter and they're, and they're in this atmosphere of we have to do something drastic and serious to stop the bleeding. And there's just this kind of atmosphere of for lack of a better term, you know, panic over sort of Twitter-driven microcycles, um, and yet you you got to you have to have a sacrificial lamb. You have to do something, and I I kind of had the, a similar hope to you that okay, if it's getting okay in the Economist, if you're seeing powerful writing in the Atlantic, if you're seeing this the chair, which is very you know, it humanizes the person who's canceled. Um, humanizes him without infantilizing him. I think it's a really good show. But, um, and that is there something turning here? And I still think something might be turning, but things don't turn on a dime. No, you're right. Well, and and the, and the thing is, it, it's just how much more proof do people actually want that there's an issue? And of course, we're having this argument when, when um, or this discussion when, when, like I said, viewpoint diversity at some of these schools is, is almost zero. Because the really gobsmacking thing, uh, David, was um, that Adam Gurry, who who, who um, is the son of Martin Gurry, someone for whom I I have a lot of respect for Martin Gurry, was quoted as saying that um, of the 426 targeted professors just since uh, 2015, um, 113 just in 2020, um, he said, if any other problem in social life was occurring at this frequency and at this scale, we would consider it effectively solved. And I'm like, okay, um, (laughs) you should have answered, I don't know a lot about this topic, so why don't you ask someone who does? Because it's just like, I think this is under, I I think he might have took took like the total number of any, any place that's designated as a, uh, as having a higher education function and then divided it, or maybe every single person who claims they're a professor in the entire world. But what, when you when you transfer this over to, say, like the top 10 schools, you're talking about, in, since 2015, you're talking about like an average of like seven or eight events, uh, at, attempts just at professors, like since 2015. When you look at the top 100 U.S. News and World Reports, it's 60, uh, 63% of them have had one of these, again, just since uh, 2015. When you add in speech codes, when you add in litigation, you're approaching probably about 100% of the uh, of, of the U.S. News and World Report students have had some kind of free speech controversy that at its core said that this person should not be allowed to say something, which is usually pretty, in the grand scheme of things, pretty uncontroversial. And it's just like, I, I I was just completely gobsmacked by that statement. I'm like, so what? In, under what circumstance is a 100 <laughs> percent? And I think I think he. The funny thing is, he actually when when he when he when I started talking to him on the internet, 
Um, the thing that made me just be like, okay, this is pointless, is he said, oh, so you're positing some kind of knock-on effect of students being being uh, uh, being punished, uh, be, that, that, that uh, professors would be hesitant to speak uh, if if they knew someone who was actually punished for saying that. And I'm like, yeah, it's called the chilling effect. It's, it, it's about as well documented as a phenomenon in psychology. It's recognized in law. You, if you really think that you're, you're going to be the professor who, uh, you know, has a colleague who just got fired for saying something slightly non-doctrinaire, if you think you're going to be completely unaffected by that, you're really paying yourself probably an, an, an unearned compliment. You know, and I think there are two things that are true at once here. One is there is a, the, the near the, the reality that school after school after school is experiencing something like this indicates that there is a profound chilling effect. At the same time, you do have a collective action problem in that there are a critical mass of professors on these campuses who are very uncomfortable with all of this, who do not like this, and will not say anything about it. And, and because, because what ends up happening is if you're the single head over the foxhole, then you're going you're gonna to take a, a hate storm. If there's 15 heads over the foxhole, if there's 20 heads over the foxhole, uh, then it changes the dynamic. But where, where are you going to get the 20 people with the 25 people, the 30 people who, who genuinely don't like what's happening on, to free speech on campus? But if you're going to say to them, do you want to go through what Professor Smith is going through? Heck no. Heck yeah, no. Exactly. I, used to, you know, represent, I used to represent professors and, and you know, I would have professors tenured, Greg, who would call me for legal advice and whisper in their office <laughs> with the door shut. I wish that and, was slightly surprising, and, but. Yeah, and there you have two things at once. Part of you saying, I totally understand this. And the other part is speak up. And because more, we need more people to speak up, but then at the same time, you recognize the collective action pro, uh, problem. And that's where things like Heterodox Academy, I think are so helpful as you know, a gathering place for small L liberal-minded professors. I mean, there are there is there is free speech pushback that exists, but it's still not reached the level where we've where I feel like the the balance of power is tilting back in the free speech direction. Yeah, the Academic Freedom Alliance that Robbie George helped set up at Princeton, you know, was was a good sign that he wanted, and he described that as kind of being like a NATO pact of professors that you know a strike against one is a strike against all, um, and you know we'll we'll see if that works. I, I think we had cases of, I think the AUP, um, some local AUPs had a situation where they actually took the student side against a professor <laughs> a summer ago, like so it's and, and and like I said, this is all happening in an environment where there aren't even that many you know open dissenting presidents. Professors to begin with, like, like at least in the sense of like conservative, there, there are departments that have literally none. And then you, and then when people will bring up, oh, uh, uh, this is my favorite, uh, and David, you'll especially appreciate this, is when I write about this stuff. Someone's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, there is no free speech uh, crisis on campus, but the real free speech crisis on campus is what's happening to liberal professors and students, and it's like. Okay, first of all, I don't think you understand who you're talking to because you probably know about those cases because of us, you know, like be because we were defending <laughs> the liberal students and professors. You probably got something yeah. that we were literally quoted in about this. And the mind boggling thing is it shows the rot that Twitter does to your brain because it's kind of like, no, if they're if it's actually coming from all sides, the PR department, the left leaning students and right leaning, uh, you know, trolls on, on the Internet, that makes the situation for free speech on campus worse, not better. Worse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I remember back in the day, back in the day, Greg, when you're in the the same office together, (laughs) back in the day, we would, we would say there is a spectrum of acceptable speech on campus and it has its limits to the left as well as to the right. Now it's limits to the, it had more room for left speech on the left. There were, was more room there, but there were limits and we would, uh, we would get involved and frequently got involved with people who were engaged in quite controversial speech from the left, defending that speech from attack. One thing that I think I've noticed from the right is this sort of rise of you, what you might call sort of professor hunting. In other words, there's always a crazy lefty academic somewhere and it's great clickbait for certain right-wing sites. And so what's ended up happening is you have the rise of sort of, hey, I can tape my professor, this, you know, my lefty professor, and I can be on Breitbart, or maybe I can be on Fox. And there's been sort of that rise of that, that sort of professor sniping on the right that you've seen. I don't, you know, you know the numbers better than I do. They're, they've definitely claimed some victims. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it's at the scale, but they have definitely claimed victims. Well, we have a uh, we have a scholar database at, at the Fire.org, and we talk about whether or not the threats came from the right or from the left. Um, more, you know, more come from the left, but a, a big chunk of them also come from the right, and that's usually you know donors calling in saying this guy has to be fired or this one, or this professor needs to be fired. So th- there there are plenty of examples of of left leaning professors getting in trouble, and it really started um, around uh, twenty thirteen when a professor. Um, sent this this in response to the Newtown massacre it wasn't the most temperate thing to say but basically say like next time this happens you know it should be your kids offensive I get like I'm, right. I'm a dad yeah, like, as soon, yeah. as, soon, as, soon as you bring people yeah, pe- people's kids in it's like ah that triggered something but anyway but we saw a lot of cases you know um, o- o- over the past you know eight years or so where it's it's liberal professors being targeted for what, what they tweeted and sometimes um, but yeah but the I call it the Overton people you know because it seems like um, uh, partic- for, for conspiracies of the culture war working together we've taken these sort of campus Overton window and sort of shrunk it and shrunk it and shrunk it because the, yeah. you know, like you, you look at what, people, I like that. What Laura, you know, Laura Kipnis is, is always, we, people come back to her a lot, but that's partially because one, she got charged by under title nine, uh, for criticizing title nine for being repressive about speech and then got charged again when she wrote a book about it. Um, so that's crazy by itself, but most, but almost more importantly, she wrote this incredible book called unwanted advances, um, that talks about this weird, creepy parallel world of, uh, of investigations that you're never going to hear about, um, that people like me and David and, 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 uh, you know, Scott Greenfeld and, and, and Ken White and like we, we all know professors who have been like in this in this situation, and it's oftentimes for something that's pretty you know would have been considered to a, a previous generation pretty minor. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. What's fascinating to me is how we've sort of seen a cycle. Because if you go back and sort of read the the founding, the founding document of FIRE would be the Shadow University. Um, that w- that's the book, Alan Charles Coros, Harvey Silverglade. 
it's chilling the stories in there. It's chilling the stories in there. And so you go back, you read The Shadow University, and then you look at some of the modern fact patterns and you're thinking, wait, wait a minute, it's all still there. It's all still there. And I think that we, we, we didn't really realize it, but we did have a period of time, I would say maybe even roughly a decade between 2004 and 2014, where I felt like we were really on the offensive uh, on free speech. And uh, we, were, we were making real progress. And then it was, then it turned, then, yeah. it, then it turned. Well, that, that, this is a big part of my focus on, um, uh, for, for the reason article is I talk about sort of the ignored years and I don't mean literally ignored, but I'd say from 1995 to about 2014, 2015, um, this was not as well covered by mainstream media. And that's partially because something very real changed. You have the first kind of, um, uh, appearance of, of, uh, of students who were demanding censorship, at least a critical mass of them, um, throughout my entire career. My career began in 2001. Um, so something really did change, but at the same time, you know, I, when you look back at the first great age of political correctness, you know, like 1985 to 1995, the the mistake we made was once this was a joke, um, that once this was a joke and once this had been defeated sufficiently in court, um, you know, professors kind of uh, lost their flair for um, speech codes. A lot of them changed their mind about it. But then everybody kind of stopped paying attention. And all of the stuff that was going to make 20, 2013, 2014 worse um, what got worse? Like, so one thing that was really gobsmacking to me when I was, um, doing the research with Jonathan Haidt was realizing the acceleration and the lack of viewpoint diversity starting in the late nineties. It's basically like people took, take, took their eyes off the ball in 1995 after the Corey V. Stanford case. Then suddenly, you know, like the, the, the rates of, um, of hiring people, you know, uh, who are more left-leaning versus right, it just skyrocketed. And that's how you end up with, you know, departments where it's like 42 to one, you know, um, some, some, and, and it tends to be the humanities. I mean, the total number moved from two to one to now five to one, but that's represent that. I, I feel like that undersells how bad it is in particular, uh, departments, uh, for example, wh where your ideology actually really does matter. This is, uh, and this was the period in which bias related incident programs started up. This is where, um, if you don't know about that, that's oftentimes the just barely constitutional way <laughs> universities try to in, in, in enforce conformity by having literally people walk around the dorms and write down offensive things that, that your friends wrote on your dry erase board. And it's like, wow. Uh, and I, I've seen so many amazing, like when, when Samantha Harris was first investigating this, they would see these, these um, BRT reports that would be like, you know, picture of a penis, picture of a penis, picture of a penis, uh, um, swear word, picture of a penis. Like it was basically just like offensive juvenile stuff that people write on, on their friends' doors when they're drunk. Shockingly, uh, shockingly, they do that. Um, but this is also when you started having a, a more sort of politicized cohort of of, um, of of people graduating from teachers' colleges, you know, popping up. Um, and I honestly think that the big sort of cyberbullying uh, scare of 2010, um, that involved a lot of high profile cyberbullying cases, which, you know, Laura, um, Emily Bazelon did a good job of showing how actually a lot of those weren't really as simple as, as, as cyberbullying cases. Um, it led to a lot of, uh, state, uh, legislation, which led to a lot more ideological, um, uh, programming in high schools. And a lot of the stuff, if you look at the stuff that we're talking about in coddling the American mind, basically our theory is that, that it's as if we taught a generation three great untruths. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. 
Um, always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. These are three things that, we, that Height and I both agree with. This is the worst possible advice you could give to somebody. But I think some of this programming <laughs> gave precisely that, that, that advice. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's as if what began to ha- what began to be sort of co- received conventional wisdom is that exposure not not just to what would be called and properly labeled harassment. In other words, something that would be harassment under under Title IX, under Title VI, under Title VII, but disagreement began to create a, a was the argument was if it was disagreement on specific issues that were particularly close to you, it it inflicted a moral injury, that there was a moral injury, there was a wound. And that wound, if it, even if it, if it ever healed, it was sort of like an old football injury that you're (laughs) always going to walk with a limp, right? And so, and so the, the, the perception was that you then have to protect people from these wounds, which inflict permanent debilitating psychological injury on individuals. And I thought that was one thing about your, you know, coddling of the American mind. And I feel like we haven't really introduced coddling, although a lot of re, uh, listeners have have read it. So this is the book you jointly wrote with Jonathan Haidt that was, you know, really eye-opening to a tremendous number of people on this very issue. That's where you get into sort of this safetyism point of view, because if disagreement on issues that are close to your heart are going to inflict permanent injury on an individual, psychic injury, then it becomes an absolute priority to try to prevent people from having that injury inflicted Um, in the same way that you would guard against some sort of devastating physical injury that you can't fully recover from. And, you know, your your rejoinder to that, that that you have to completely adjust your mindset from that which doesn't kill you makes you weaker (laughs) from a different and preferable formulation when it comes to disagreement and argument um, this is a deep cultural thing because you're you're not just talking about administrators here, you're talking about parents, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm um I, maybe it's too too early to announce this, but I I am now looking into doing a, a follow up to coddling the American mind, where we focus a lot more on solutions um, and try to figure out what parents can do, what 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 would be better for K through twelve, what would be better for colleges, that kind of stuff. But go for like ideas that include entirely new institutions, like not 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 cutting around the edges, just actually you know trying trying to figure out big big bold solutions. And when it comes to parents, one thing that we um, think we undervalue. Um, uh, undervalued in um, in the book was uh, the role of parental anxiety, um, sort of uh, creating childhood anxiety. Uh, and there was this wonderful piece by uh, Kate Julian in the Atlantic, also um, talking about uh, how um, some of the best therapies for childhood anxiety, which is you know skyrocketing and has been for a long time, is CBT for the parents. Um, which is, and, mm. and that with only like now, somewhat minor CBT is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm like the, I'm a big proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy and for, for, for kind of like, you know, um, for, is it right brain that I don't know how to describe it, but basically it's learning how to talk back to your own, um, exaggerated voices that everybody has. And what, and, and what I mean by voices is, you know, when you have that voice in your said head saying, 
uh, this date is going to fail and you're going to die alone and, you know, like nobody ever loves you. And really like all, and, it, and it's amazing because it's not power of positive thinking. Some, sometimes people think that's, that's what this is. No, it's just using your, your prefrontal cortex. It, it's looking at what you just said and asking yourself, is this accurate? Are you really, is this really proof you're going to die alone? And saying to yourself, you know, actually it was just a date that went bad. And I still feel sad about it, but I feel yeah. 90% <laughs> yeah. less sad about it than, than when I thought this was a, this was the final verdict on me. And the point was that, and I started noticing this back in 2007, it was as if administrators were saying, um, do overgeneralize, do catastrophize, do engage in binary thinking, you're in constant danger, I, uh, the, the world is one big risk and you won't survive it. And from 2007 to 2013, students weren't buying it. They, they were rolling their eyes at it just like students usually do. And then again, 2013, 2014, like lightning hit, suddenly you have students coming on campus and they're making the medicalized arguments that speech needs to be shut down because it's medically harmful to have uh, th these, you know, hateful or hurtful ideas. Yeah. And, you know, look, this is my generation of parents here. <laughs> and it's, and I think this is really important for listeners to understand because it's not like students are arriving on campus with a robust view of free speech and then having <laughs> no. the administrators, the administrators are then teaching them to be snowflakes. That is not the way this is happening. It is, you have helicopter parents who are kind of coming into uh, helicopter parents with their kids who've grown up in this in this helicopter parenting world and it's as if then the parents are then handing over the helicoptering to the administrators and the kids are still looking who look to mom and dad to make the world safe for their feelings are now just sort of transferring over to another entity who's supposed to make the world safe for their feelings and and what ends up and, and one thing that is really interesting to me my peers my parental peers raised their children profoundly differently from the way they were raised. Oh, and absolutely. this is something that that you guys got into. And I, was it was it Jonathan who, at a speech, and, and correct me if my memory is wrong, sort of asked the audience, "At what age were you allowed out of the house without supervision?" And then, versus, "At what age did you allow your children out of the house without supervision?" And the difference in those numbers was dramatic. And the weird thing is, when I was young, I was allowed, I was kind of a free-range kid, even though I had pretty strict parents, at a time of life that was empirically more dangerous than things are now. And my parental peers, like the idea that their kids would be allowed to get out of the house on their own in a nice neighborhood at age nine, unthinkable. Yeah. Unthinkable. Yeah, John, I've watched on us, and for me, you know, the answer for a lot of us is five or six, you know, like, could I like walk, you know, grab some change, walk down to the corner store, try to get myself a comic book, you know, like pretty, pretty young. And, you know, and having people, you know, in the audience, you know, when they raise their hand saying 12, 14, you know, it's like, wow, this is, this is intense. And yeah, and, and, and one of the things that it, uh, Steve Horowitz, um, who passed away from cancer uh, this past year, um, uh, very tragic. It looked actually like he was recovering. We quote him at length in Coddling the American Mind, talking about the democratic value of play, that essentially unstructured free playtime, um, you know, is important to learn how to navigate interrelationships. But when that's entirely replaced by, you know, if there, you have a conflict, tell an adult um, from your parents and same thing in K through 12, same thing in 
uh, higher education, you know, that, that essentially that you can go to the BRT, which, um, uh, which a lot of students uh, do uh, to, in order to report your, your, your fellow students for being offensive or your professors, as, uh, as we covered earlier. Um, and then you have the, the human rights, uh, HR department, you know, at corporations. And the re- and this should be worry people more than uh, than you might think, because freedom, you know, is this idea that that um, you're, you, is that conflict should not be intermediated. It's between you and your fellow citizen. You are, you're at some level, um, you know, as a matter of dignity, equal, you know, th- that you can carry this out on your own. But when you're always looking up to authority to figure out problems and you think that's actually the appropriate response, that's not training people to live in a, what we would consider a, a free society. Where they, it, it's, it's a traditional society, but it's an authoritarian society, even if it doesn't feel that way. Um, and it, so it, the, the potential damage, I, I think it does here, it, it it does literally keep me up at night. Yeah, I, you know, my goodness, we're we're in a rich. This is a rich topic right here because, <laughs> yeah. um, for me, you know, again, I had strict parents growing up, very discipline focused. <laughs> I, I did not so much. And yeah, but I do not remember a time when I could not leave my house and go anywhere in the neighborhood. Yeah. the The joke among my friends was, um, uh, Josh has to call home by one. Uh, wait, Josh has to call home by midnight. John has to be home by one and Greg has to be home by Tuesday. <laughs> for me, it was, I had to be home for dinner because we all ate dinner together and then I could go back out. And then I had another time when I had to be home and it was like this, where are you going? I'm, you know, Brent's house, you know, and then I'd go and then I, we would just do stuff all afternoon, all into the evening and then come back, what you've been doing. And that's that, you know, but here's the fascinating thing is then, so let's say you're in sports, okay? So let's say you love basketball, baseball, football. When I was growing up, uh, school sports ended and you had the summer that was yours. There wasn't, you know, the travel teams, all of this stuff. Now with my kids, my older two kids, and well, all three kids, but my older two, um, throughout high school and throughout junior high, if we wanted to have them play high school sports and have this sort of free play lifestyle, not possible, not possible because everything about sports, it, sports became all consuming. I remember um, when I was, when my kids were in elementary school, talking to parents who had kids in junior high and high school. And this was when I was traveling around the country, fundraising a ton. I was still in the army reserves and I was doing that. And I just felt frazzled and busy. And I was like talking to these parents and they said, I I would say, how are you guys doing? And they would have this look like they, they just run a marathon and they'd say, I am just, we're just ridiculously busy. And I'd kind of internally roll my eyes. No, you're not. Then my kids got on that rat race and it was, it was like, you're making this decision. Are you going to play high school basketball and high school football? Are you going to play high school volleyball? If the answer to that is yes then a whole lot of other things followed from that. And the other aspect was what you notice when all play becomes structured, all of it is through travel teams, school teams, school practices, all disputes are adjudicated by adults. Every one of them. You don't have that, we're going to kind of work this out in the backyard and and then we're going to go on. That I'm going to say all disputes, but an enormous percentage of disputes. And you get in the habit of looking for the adjudicator the instant that there is a personal disagreement. I think that's a really, and 
And I don't have a great way out of it, to out of this rat race, to be honest. Yeah, and and the amount of you know one of the things that that is was also remarkable looking at the scholar database is that you know my overall argument of having to accept um, that we give Harvard, for example, you know way too much power over our kids' futures, um, and Yale, you know when you, when you, when literally every single you know uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, I think except Amy Coney Barrett, attended either Harvard or Yale at some point. You know, like you're there, there's something. Uh, sort of uncomfortable going on. And we looked at the scholar database, the top 10 schools, the most exclusive schools in the country, which way punch above their weight in terms of like who, I, I sound like a Marxist, but I mean this, who, who becomes America's ruling class. I think they were averaging something like seven or eight incidents of professors being targeted just since 2015. Like, like they, they were some of the worst ones that we saw. And they're, they're also the ones that already had the lowest viewpoint diversity uh, d- diversity rate. We give these schools way too much power over our lives. And we have to figure out some way out of, out, out of this trap because the, 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 these institutions, um, you know, they feel no competition in a meaningful sense. Because if you're, you know, at Stanford uh, or, or Harvard, like you get to say, it, you, you have such power over where where people, parents think their kids are going to end up in life. You're, you you are the easy pass to to to, to the uh, actually to to actually probably a fairly brutal life working in a law firm. But that's an, another story altogether. <laughs> but but the extent to which we sort of like rely on the small number of elite schools to, um, for for our leaders is. is we're overdoing it wildly. Well, there's an interesting cultural divide here. And I want to, I've written about this before, but I want to write about it more depending on where you are. So if you're in the, if you're in the Northeast, if you're on the urban West coast, the parental um, culture is hyper-focused, especially the upper middle class and, and wealthy parental culture is hyper-focused on elite school admission. It is a family project. It is something that they're thinking about from early ages. If you're where I am in suburban, the suburban South, it is not a thing. It is not a thing. And so what ends up happening is that you begin to have, and and this is going to segue into some interesting numbers, you begin to have this cultural divide in college admissions, an ideological divide in college admissions, a cultural divide on college campuses. So for example, in the southeastern conference area where I live, the big the big trend now on, on Saturdays is the student body chants "F Joe Biden," <laughs> and so so it's it, you will hear it. I was at uh, University of Tennessee football game uh, about two or three weeks ago, and it six seven times in in the game against the University of Pittsburgh, the entire arena uh, arena stadium, you know, ninety plus thousand, starting in the student body is the "F Joe Biden" chant. I doubt you'd hear that at Harvard. I seriously doubt it. Um, and so you're sitting there going, wait a minute, whatever happened to woke college students? <laughs> it is, but it's the University of Tennessee. It's the University of Alabama. But then you go to Harvard and Harvard, this 87% of the incoming Harvard class of 2025 um, voted for Joe Biden compared to 6.3% for Donald Trump. 87 to six. And I think a lot of that is a product, a product of these very different cultures, these hyper focused on elite admissions, coastal communities compared to where I lived, where, Hey, yeah, university of Tennessee is fine. That's great. 
And that was my su- superpower coming in is that, you know, like I, uh, my parents are immigrants. So there was this kind of vague sense I was supposed to go to college. It was important, but I didn't entirely understand why. And I visited one university, one big American university. They gave me basically a full scholarship. I was like, sure, okay, I'll go there. Um, and by the time I went to Stanford for law school, it was amazing to see the cultural difference that, that the, these were, this was something people have been preparing for, for their whole lives. And I kind of felt like almost like yes. an insult to, like, like to that. But I will say that one thing that was a little disturbing was how the, the, the exaggerated additional regard you got for going to one of these fancy schools seemed way out of proportion to, to, to what, w- what the accomplishment actually was. And, and we've only gotten sort of worse in that direction. And I think that, you know, also one problem I don't know how to solve is that we have students coming into um, uh, hitting college at having passed fewer sort of maturity milestones um, than they would have been in, in, in a previous generation. So this is something that, that Eric, um, what was his last name? Um, Eric, I forget. Um, but he was arguing that um, Eric. Uh, uh, Eric. University of Chicago professor who has a famous dad. I can't remember his actual name. Um, the uh, uh, but saying that you know students are are less mature, therefore we need to get rid of free speech on campus. Um, and it was a, re- a really remarkable piece. But at the same time, like what what do we do about this sort of like um, uh, this lack of sort of uh, locus of control of agency of all this kind of stuff? And one thing we definitely came strongly uh, we, we we came to strongly support would be the idea of some kind of working gap year that essentially like if people if students had a chance to get out and make some decisions for themselves and feel autonomous and meet different people um that could make a big difference not just to you know polarization but also to mental health yeah yeah you know i think about my my upbringing so i grew up i mean my parents very educated my dad was a college um math professor at and my my mom was a teacher but at a very uh, at a rural a baptist college in kentucky I went to Lipscomb University, good school, but it's not the school that like parents in Boston are working their kids towards their whole life, you know? And it didn't even occur to me to think about going to Harvard Law School until literally I got my LSAT scores back. Same, um, same. So total, this was, total same. I was like, oh, look at that. I'm, I'm weirdly good at this thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let me swing for the fences. And <laughs> and so, but I, I am of the view now that it's almost diff- that that path that you and I took is almost closed. Yeah. No, it's it's, or right. it's closing. Yeah. It's closing. And so it, it has to be sort of this all consuming life family project. And then the other thing is you have the elite cultural institutions off campus, the Silicon Valley Goliaths, the elite journalism you name it. And where are they going to recruit? They're going to Harvard, Stanford, Yale to recruit. They're not going to the University of Tennessee necessarily to recruit, even though there's a pile of very smart kids there. They're not going there to recruit. And it just reinforces this whole cycle. And, and that was something that, that Height and I keep hearing is from pe- people who run, um, you know, companies uh, coming to us. And oh, they always, you know, preface, I can't, don't tell anybody I told you this. But that a lot of the elite college graduates that are coming, they're kind of recreating some of the situations they saw on campus where sort of minor uh, squabbles between students now have to be a major sort of, uh, between employees have to be sort of a major thing at an individual company. And it was actually like a a, a, a friend of mine who's um, uh, also, who was actually very progressive. um, And she wanted to 
quote unquote, talk to me about coddling about my book. And I was like, oh no, she's really going to give me what for. And this was, and instead, this is what she was saying. She was saying that essentially the, you know, the new crop of activist students who are coming in think the organization that helps people is actually the problem itself. And it ends up leading to this sort of dysfunctional situation. It, um, you know, and we're hearing from some, some corporate, you know, corporate heads that they're just not going to hire from the IVs anymore. Um, and I got to say, like some of our best employees at FIRE come from the University of Indiana. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there is a corporate mistake that is being made to assume that the, the, the IVs are going to have the most elite minds because I know for a fact, I know for a fact. So for example, the University of Alabama has a program where if you are a National Merit Scholar, you go to Alabama for free. Okay. So all of a sudden, Alabama has this massive concentration of na- national merit scholars who are who are going to college for free. It's a great, I mean, if you're a parent and your kid is, you know, especially if you're a middle-class parent and your kid has uh, is a national merit scholar, heck yeah, <laughs> free college. Are you kidding me? And so, but, but I think it's past time for employers to realize there are concentrations of kids at a lot of these universities around the country who are every bit as qualified and capable intellectually. And this diver- and then the other thing that they would have is if you, if you let's say you have 100 kids coming into this elite institution or 100 new hires, and instead of 78 of them coming from the IVs or IV equivalents, you've got 40 or 45, and you've got 25, 30 kids coming from the Big Ten or the SEC or the Pac-12 or whatever, you're going to have, it's going to be more diverse. It's just going to yeah. be more. Diverse. It's also going to lead to more cultural conflict, though, because th- there'll be s- such different um, expectations from the kids who went to the to, to the fanciest schools. And this is the funny thing. It is that if it, I, I tried to work this through at one point, and I think Samantha wanted, uh, Harris wanted to write a book about this as well, and I probably will never actually use this title. But I think the best parallel to what we're seeing, frankly, is more like the Victorian era. And I remember I, I spoke at... um. Haverford. Um, and this is one of the things that led us to do do the um, speech rankings. Oh, I should talk about speech rankings. Um, for, for, uh, to, to, to do all the, the, the surveys of schools. Because after I spoke at a lot of working class schools and, and came, and I knew that they'd be better for free speech, but experiencing it, I came away much more kind of like, oh, okay, maybe things aren't that bad. Maybe things are improving. I spoke at Haverford and it was like I was in a society where people were like, anytime they could get me alone, they're like, everybody's afraid to say anything here because you will basically be unpersoned. And, and, you know, and people forget that also means nobody, nobody's going to date you. Like it, the, the, the place had, has like 1700 students or some like really small number of students. And it just felt like such a tense environment. And I couldn't, I was so kind of horrified by how many, you know, reporters for the student newspaper who were telling us how, how, how sort of nervous people were that I, I kind of gave a, one of my less sort of charitable speeches, but like, listen, you guys are acting like the, you know, elite preparatory school that people think you are. I know that you you, you think you sound very progressive, <laughs> but to my ears, you sound very Victorian. You, you sound like the upper class kids always sound to the working class kids, which is, I know how you should think. I know how you can be better. And the funny thing is, by, by kind of chastising this group, I got a lot more nodding, you know, like from, from people who I think came in hostels, like, oh, there is something wrong with this. This is not a particularly accepting way. This is kind of assuming that, you know, the, my institution is the lone arbiter of truth is actually not a very sophisticated way to look at the world. Well, and the other, th- one other thing that's happening that I think is underestimated by folks on, on, in many of these IV and IV equivalent schools that are very, that are, ma- ma- that are ideological monocultures. 
in many ways, they also end up radicalizing the right-wing students that are there. Sure. So, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you have is a, an, a sympathy for sort of brute force kind of state interventions and a sympathy for the professor hunting and a sympathy for sort of the, the punch him in the nose uh, view of politics um, because a lot of these students had frankly miserable experiences in college and, and say, th- are, if this, if this is what, um, that, you know, the, the, the cultural superstructure is, it has to be smashed. It needs to be. And so they're, so not only are they sort of, um, Victorian in that mindset, they're also radicalizing their opposition in some interesting ways. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why I, I, I after I debated Sora Bamari and the David Frenchism thing, I had a young student come up to me and say, um, Sorab is right because you have no idea how horrible it is on these campuses. And I was thinking, <laughs> I, think, I, I, think you, I think you had a little bit of a lesson of it. Yeah, I think I might know more than you think, but um, there, there is a radicalization that is going on, not across the entire right on campus, but in segments of the right on campus um, that is in response to this radicalization that's happening on the left. It's, you know, it, one of our cultural trademarks now is that you only counter extremism with opposing extremism <laughs> and, and we're, we're stampeding in that direction. Yeah. Oh, and I wanted to mention the free speech rankings um, while we still have time. Um, so we were never able to do this previously, um, uh, but uh, now that we're actually able to ask students what they think of the environments themselves, we're still working out the methodology. Um, but uh, last year we did 55 schools and somewhat um, unsurprisingly, but I'm always surprised when something confirms kind of like your your existing biases, University of Chicago placed first. Um, this year, the number one college, believe it or not, was Claremont McKenna. Um, and which is funny because Claremont McKenna in, in California was previously really bad and they had some really bad free speech incidents, including, um, you know, surrounding and cutting off, uh, Heather, uh, Heather McDonald when she tried to speak there, McDonald. Her, yeah. um, you know, uh, and it was threats terrible. of violence. Yeah. That's violence. Like they wouldn't, you know, they chased her to, to, to the alternate place where she was having the event. It was crazy. Um, but Claremont McKenna, I, I was the last place I visited before COVID and, um, they really clearly like got down to business. Like this, I, I talked to probably a dozen students who were talking about, I came here because, you know, they, they were serious about free speech. So the top five were Claremont McKenna, University of Chicago, University of New Hampshire, Emory and Florida State. Not all kind of surprises, but but the bottom, we did 55 last year. This year, we did 150. Um, I, this is something that I hope to keep doing every year and get up to at least 300, 400 schools. But the, the bottom, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, which if you go to thefire.org, has some of the most ridiculous free speech cases you've ever seen, including there was at one point they were trying to tell students that they couldn't like protest in a particular area and they claimed they couldn't because of eminent domain. <laughs> and we're like, no, that's, you're, <laughs> you're, not, you're not understanding that. Uh, Boston College, 151. Louisiana State University, shockingly, 152. Uh, Marquette University, not surprising at all. And here's a school that I, I just, uh, maybe, I, I, I thought I knew a, a lot of schools, but I never hear anything about this one. But two years in a row, it has hit dead last, is DePaul University. Um, is one, was 55 out of 55 last year and 154 out of, uh, out of you know, 154 uh, this year. Goodness. That's fascinating. Well, we'll put in the show notes a link to the Scholar Database and the free speech rankings um, so that people can check those out. 
So I've taken enough of your time, but I do have a question for you. You bet. In our mutual nerds with opinions, have <laughs> you started Foundations yet on Apple TV? I have not. We're actually doing For Mankind. Um, basically, like we're doing what a lot of other people do is we don't have an app. Uh, we buy an app and then try to binge everything we want to watch on it. So I actually got Apple for Chuck upon Chuck, Ted Lasso, which which I love. I think it's brilliant. But the, the, the episode with Beard uh, left me feeling like I've actually had a pretty good life. Like it, I, I felt like genuinely inspired by that <laughs> brilliant, brilliant episode. Um, but the so we're watching For Mankind. I, I'm, I'm dying to watch Foundation. We only watch one hour of TV uh, a, a day. Um, and the funny thing is you can polish off everything if, if you have like a show that you watch with your with your spouse every night. Um, so I'm going to make a big pitch for Foundation. Um, I'm, I might not be able to pull it off. I, 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 is it good? I'm hearing nothing but bad. Oh, no. Um, so I haven't watched it yet. But I believe none of it until I see it with my own eyes. <laughs> like I... You know, well, I, I mean, do not trust a lot of the, of Twitter's assessment of sci-fi uh, content. So. These these might be the very same people who try to convince me that Thor was like one of the worst Marvel movies, and I'm like, no, Thor is an elegant work of art. Like it, it's a beautifully, it, it's lighter and it's sweeter. But he, the idea that Kenneth Branagh was able to transform the completely ridiculous story of Thor and the Marvel universe into something that kind of made a little bit of sense and was also funny and touching and, and, and action packed. I, I thought he did a brilliant job. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm going to check it out and make my own, my own independent assessment of foundation, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And Hey, Apple has spent an enormous amount of money on this. So at the very least, this, <laughs> this, uh, the special effects are going to be fantastic. So. Well, you know what else they spent a lot of money on? Waterworld. And Waterworld has literally at the beginning <laughs> of the movie, I think the first line is, well, nothing's free in Waterworld. And I'm like, ooh, wow, that's terrible dialogue. And you're starting it right at the very beginning. <sighs> Well, I, I'm going to, I have a limited defense. Well, I won't bore the listeners with my water world defense. I had but a feeling I liked, you'd have a like water world defense. <laughs> I actually like the first, the world building aspect of it and sort of the first two thirds. But then the idea that there was sitting out there a super tanker in water world that jet skis were in close enough range to human <laughs> settlements. I just, I just, I didn't quite get that. but. Um, yeah, jet skis and wave runners were in close. Yeah, no, no. But the world building I thought was was cool, and the idea of a you know a person evolving with gills and that kind of world. That's not that how was evolution cool. works. Was you don't just you don't just wake up with gills one day. Like it's yeah, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan. Oh, but let's how do you know, Greg? Note. We haven't had a water world. <laughs> but fair, fair point. Fair point. Um, so. I, I think we should probably leave with a recommendation of a show they might a movie they haven't seen or or nerdy thing they haven't uh, seen. Did you see Ex Machina? Oh, the the movie. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's one that for people who are sort of more sci sci fi skeptic, um, I, I, I thought that was just a, that was a excellent film and it's really dark, um, but it's kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's very good. It's very good, but you better be ready for dark if you're going to yeah, watch an Ex Machina. It, it's it's <laughs> all mean, about the, the worst grim. about hu worst about human nature in, in it, but but very very impressively done. And if for lighter fare, uh, Shazam has now become my favorite Christmas movie. <laughs> Shazam is super solid. All right, <laughs> all right. Unless we go down this rabbit hole too much longer, we need to cut it off. But. Uh, 
I, I thank you, Greg. Uh, really appreciate you filling in, uh, answering the call, and unnamed fire donor. I mean, we expect you to, you, we expect you after an entire episode because of you, we expect you to up your donation to fire from fifth, from 200 a month to, I don't know, 400, 500, maybe 220. I don't want to be greedy. <laughs> okay. <you're, laughs> all right. All right. That's fair enough. Fair enough. I did want to say one thing. Um, uh, Bonnie Snyder at, at, uh, at fire has a new book released called indoctrinate talking about, uh, problems in K through 12. Um, uh, it's, it's a really compelling book and it just came out. Yes. Yes. I'm glad you, uh, reminded us of that. So check that out. Indoctrinate by Bonnie Snyder. Um, Hey, let's put a link to the book in the show notes and thank you, Greg. We really appreciate you joining advisory opinions and guys tune in. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday don't know who the guest is yet. And Sarah will be back next week. So as always, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and please check out thedispatch.com and I'll talk to you on Thursday. <laughs>